Hello, New York, and welcome to listeners around the United States and around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and welcome to Rediscovering New York, a weekly radio show that will showcase New York City's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Here every Tuesday at 7 p.m., we'll focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy, really what makes the neighborhood special. And we'll do that mostly through interviews with urban historians, local business owners, artists, and interesting neighborhood personalities. And each show will be available on archive and podcast the day after the show airs. Occasionally, I will host a show about an interesting part of the city that's not about one particular neighborhood. It might be about one of our fine urban parks, a great museum, the history of our transit system, the city in the time of a particular social or political movement or musical genre, or a unique New York architectural phenomenon like Rockefeller Center. Each radio episode will be informative, entertaining, illuminating, and of course, fun. You gotta have fun. As this is my first show, I thought I would take a minute to talk about how I came to sign up for hosting Rediscovering New York and taking you on these weekly journeys. I'm a licensed real estate agent at Halstead Real Estate, one of the city's leading real estate firms. In my years in the business, one of the things that I found that we do is to make it possible for people to live in this great city by selling or renting homes. One of the commitments that I've developed as a real estate professional is to showcase the city's extraordinary neighborhoods. And I've actually been doing this for years through different kinds of programming that I create and host. Most notably, my hosted walking tours, which are aptly titled Rediscovering New York. On these tours, I actually don't give them, I host them, partnering with amazing experts who know how to bring neighborhoods to life by guiding people through their streets and illuminating their history. A few months ago, the station's owner here at Talk Radio asked me if I would consider hosting a weekly program about New York and its neighborhoods. Here I am, and we're here. We will embark on weekly journeys, mostly showcasing the city's neighborhoods, and on occasion exploring some other great characteristics of the urban fabric we see and experience in New York every day. Now, as this is our first show, rather than focus on a specific neighborhood, I thought I would tee up the weekly program by more generally covering New York City's history. How did we become the metropolis we are today? How did the city of amazing neighborhoods get its start? And how did its history contribute to the creation and growth of the city of extraordinary neighborhoods we see today? We have two great guests for today's program, Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours, and then later on in the program, Kent Swig of Swig Equities and Terra Holdings. Welcome, Joyce. Joyce Gold is a recognized expert and educator in New York history. And for more than 40 years, she's been guiding New Yorkers and visitors alike to rave reviews. She does it through private walking tours as well as tours open to the public. On her tour site, JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. Full disclosure, Joyce is my tour guide de force for my <coughs> walking tours and rediscovering New York. Joyce also teaches a class at NYU on New York history, which anyone can take. You don't have to be matriculated at NYU to take it. And Joyce is also published. She's written From Windmills to the World Trade Center, A Walking Guide Through the History of Lower Manhattan. And also From Trout Stream to Bohemia, A Walking Guide Through the History of Greenwich Village. She's also contributed entries to the Encyclopedia of New York City. And the New York Times declared her the Dean of New York City Tour Guides. It is a real pleasure to have you. Welcome, Joyce Gold. 
Thank you, Jeff. I'm honored to be on your very first show. My first guest on my first show. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Uh, you're not from New York originally, are you? I am not. I'm from a small town in Pennsylvania, Hazleton, PA. And I moved to New York with my family when I was in the ninth grade. So I've been here ever since. Ah. And while you came here, obviously, because your, your uh, family brought you. It's not Correct. like you decided you had to <laughs> make it here and make it anywhere. It'll be in New York. Uh, did you start your professional life and career in tours and neighborhoods in history? Oh, no. I did a number of different things uh, out of college. I have an undergraduate degree in English literature. I taught English in the public schools of Queens, uh, middle schools. And I was a computer analyst for a lot of years. I sold real estate for about four years, residential real estate in Manhattan. I had my own stained glass business, which was a lot of fun. And the best of all of those careers now help me in the career that I, I have today. Dare I ask, how did uh, stained glass help uh, <laughs> in illuminating uh, New York's great neighborhoods and its history for people? What, what's the, it's what's the definite connection, connection oh. in that the stained glass company was my own company. And I ran it, and I liked all the parts about it. And so I always wanted to own my own show, and now I do that as well. When did you decide to get into doing what you're known as today, as the dean, the doyen, the, uh, the amazing choice goal? How oh, did you thank you, thank you. Well, in the 1970s, I was a computer analyst, a computer analyst at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York downtown. And one day, there was a wonderful old bookshop, Mendoza's Bookstore on Ann Street. I picked up a 100-year-old guidebook to New York that talked about New York 100 years before that. The streets they talked about, I passed every day coming from the subway. I didn't know any of that history. And in the 70s, nobody I worked with knew any of it either. So um, I just kept reading and reading, and it made my day much more interesting. So I started to feel bad that people who live in New York neighborhoods didn't know what they were passing every day. And so I sort of began seeing myself as something of a missionary to the New Yorker. How many people, especially who've been on tours that you give and that I host, say, you know, I've lived in this neighborhood for years and I never, I've never known much about it or did that really happen at that address? Or They definitely say that. And a lot of them also say, you know, I would go to this place in Europe, but I didn't know Chinatown was like this or the Lower East Side was like this. There seems to be something of a divide in Manhattan where uptown people sometimes never come downtown and vice versa. <laughs> <coughs> so did you actually start reading some of this history while you and you're doing your computer day work oh did definitely <laughs> definitely i worked on i worked on weekends i offered tours to the public on weekends for a few years and uh, of course doing it full-time is much more interesting uh much more variety a lot of people have specific people are increasingly sophisticated and uh last week i did a tour of greenwich village but somebody wanted what was prohibition like in Greenwich Village. So there are all kinds of versions of what I do that interest people. And you do how many tours of the village? You said 30 of them? <laughs> I 30? think there are something like 35 of them, depending on how you count. Wow. Yeah. I've been on several of them, including the macabre of Greenwich Village, uh -huh. the uh, uh, notorious women. What was the, yes. Yeah, so the immigrant uh, radical yes, notorious yes. women of Washington Which Square. is also a great tour. <laughs> Uh, you know, one of the things about having you on the show today is that uh, we're just going to scratch the surface from the incredible knowledge 
and ideas that you have about about how neighborhoods developed and how neighborhoods mm -hmm. formed. Uh, I did want to focus today on talking about the the beginning of the Europeans who came here, who lived in towns and settlements, mm -hmm. as opposed to the, the native peoples who were here before. Um, when did Europeans first come here, and what was this? What what did they start? What was what was first here? Well, the first uh, time they settled here, uh, as opposed to claimed it, which was some years earlier, was 1624, uh, making us the oldest big city in the country today. And it was the Dutch, but the Dutch at that time had more tolerance in Europe than any other country. And so people, especially uh, religious dissenters from all over Europe, were flooding into the Netherlands. And uh, the Dutch provided tolerance in all of their colonies worldwide, including in Manhattan. So the famous statistic is that in 1643, there were about 400 people in Manhattan, and they were already speaking 18 different languages. Wow, mm -hmm. that's amazing. Yeah, I like to talk about the Dutch a lot, because even though we were a Dutch colony for only 40 years and a British colony for 119, because the Dutch were here first, they came to make a profit. That's part of the character of the city, the diversity, the new ideas also started by the Dutch. Well, without offending some of our uh, longtime allies and friends in Europe, I sometimes say, uh, I'm so glad we were settled by the Dutch and not the French, the Portuguese, the Spanish, or even the English in the early days. We would probably be a different place than what we are today. Yes. Um, and actually, the first Jewish immigrants came to the city in... During the Dutch period, huh. 1654. And they came from the last place most people would expect. They came from Brazil, because northern Brazil was... Portuguese, when the Dutch took over uh, Pernambuco, they uh, allowed Dutch t the Jews to be there, and 900 Jewish people, half of the city was Jewish, but then when the Portuguese took it back, they all had to get out of town, and one of the uh, 23 men, women, and children ended up in the nearest Dutch port, which was Manhattan. Hmm. Fast forward a little bit. When did the first neighborhood outside of Lower Manhattan first come into existence? Below well, it started, of course, with Lower Manhattan because the Dutch were f fearful that the British would come into the harbor, and they wanted to keep an eye out on the harbor, so they settled at the southern tip. And only as more people came to town did the line of settlement move up the island. By the end of the 19th century, they had covered Manhattan Island. Hmm. What were some of the uh, first neighborhoods that existed outside of the wall, mm -hmm. outside of Lower Manhattan? At that point, the, the, there were towns in northern Manhattan, New Harlem, the, uh, Greenwich Village. That was That's right. New Harlem starts in 1658. During the Dutch time, it was something of a farming community for the Dutch, 10 miles from uh, New Amsterdam at the southern tip. There was Carmensville. There was Bloomingdale, which had nothing to do with the department store. It was basically 103rd Street and Broadway. And uh, a lot of well-to-do people, especially about a little over 200 years ago, had their country estates along the East River. Only one of those country estates still remains, and it is Gracie Mansion, the mayor, uh, the home of the mayor of the city. Hmm. But uh, the first uh, poor neighborhood, because when everybody lived at the southern tip of the island, uh, poor and rich people lived fairly close to each other, but the five points by the 1830s uh, is, becomes a very, very poor neighborhood, uh, poor people of all stripes. 
And that neighborhood expanded substantially at uh, in the Irish potato blight in the, in the 1840s, correct? Yes, you've really touched on one of the main uh, parts that I love about New York history. What happened in Europe to make people come here is New York history. And so they say that by 1850, New York, and that was strictly Manhattan at the time, was 52% foreign-born, half from Ireland uh, ha- after the terrible t- uh, potato uh, famine or starvation, as it's more often called, and the revolution in Germany in 1848. Half of a quarter of the immigrants were German. Mm. Well, I think we're going to take a little break, and we'll be back in just a minute to continue our conversation with the amazing Joyce Gold. <laughs> You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, The Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Who do you want to connect with? Are you an entrepreneur or intrapreneur looking to build your following? Welcome to our show. Follow Me Friday with Joan and Priya. Tune in every Friday at noon Eastern on talkradio.nyc. We're We're your digital connectors. connectors. Woo woo! (laughs) (laughs) Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. We're back to Rediscovering New York, and my first guest today, Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. Uh, you know, there's so much we can talk about in so relatively short period of time in our, in our first episode. Um, the Five Points is, is a neighborhood that doesn't exist anymore. That's um, correct. When did it change from being mostly Irish to, to other neighborhoods? How did, how did that happen? What? Well, in the 1870s, it was decided to kind of flatten it. It had an international reputation of being about crime. And so uh, physically, the city opened up a street that had stopped at an intersection, giving you the five corners or five points. And they ran uh, the street all the way over to Chatham Square, so it wasn't a dead end. They also changed the names of the streets. For example, what had been uh, Orange Street is now Baxter. What had been Anthony is now um, is now Worth Street. And so that's one of the ways they did it. They also just threw the poor out. There wasn't a feeling that you had to consider the poor. You just considered the physical neighborhood. And at one point, they said, let's get rid of the poor to make it safe to have lawyers' offices here. No rent regulation back then, huh? (laughs) Not many regulations at all. (laughs) Stabilized or rent control. It didn't (laughs) exist. 
Um, what were some of the neighborhoods that that uh, got developed and that evolved mm-hmm. later on in the 19th century and early 20th century? Well, basically, the poor lived at the waterfront because if the men, first uh, the Irish in the 1850s and then the Italians in the 1890s, about the only jobs they could often get were physical backbreaking labor, which mended the docks. So it was poor, basically, from the five points all the way up to 42nd Street, which is why Armour Meatpacking in the Gas House District used to be on the site of the present United Nations. So that's why it was. It was all along the waterfront. The well-to-do tried to live as far away from the poor as possible, which is what Fifth Avenue is all about. So Greenwich Village uh, is first on a city map in 1697, and they had the water, and things came in, and artisans got their copper or their bricks or their wood. So Greenwich Village, in a certain sense, starts early, but it really develops overnight in 1822 because of a cholera, a smallpox epidemic downtown that never reached Greenwich Village. Uh, so all the different neighborhoods have different identities today, although there is certainly a homogenizing effect going on because they all have different histories. Hmm. Let's talk briefly about uh, Brooklyn. Um, Brooklyn had been its own city and wasn't part of Greater New York until 1898. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe due to a little bit of slate of hand in the vote counting in the city, but we won't go there on this episode. Um, how did the construction and the opening of the Brooklyn Bridge um, develop at least what we know as downtown Brooklyn today to become more of a bedroom community and begin to foster mm-hmm. development of neighborhoods in Brooklyn? Well, you might say Brooklyn starts for some as a bedroom community uh, in 1818 when a man, Pierpont, who owned a lot of the Brooklyn Heights waterfront, uh, paid Robert Fulton to put in a ferry service between Brooklyn and Manhattan. And so a lot of the Wall Street brokers started living in Brooklyn Heights, and then they would commute. But it was in 1883 that the Brooklyn Bridge goes up, and that's when it becomes something of a boom. Uh, A lot of the population growth in Brooklyn and in Queens and the Bronx had to do with transportation. Today, transportation is our number one ticket item in the city, and it always has been. At what point in our history did uh, affordable, reliable public transportation become available that enabled uh, people who were not well off to be able to to live a, uh, a greater distance from from working than they had in the old days, like working on the docks and living three blocks in? That's so. right. That's right. Well, there were two main changes that affected people, and in eighteen seventy nine to eighty two four of our avenues get covered over about 20 feet above the tarmac with uh, elevated railroads. And when the L's meant that you could move from Harlem to your Wall Street job in a reasonable amount of time, in the 1880s and 90s, some of the wealthiest New Yorkers moved to Harlem. Uh, They also opened up the whole Upper West Side, the neighborhood that we're sitting in at the moment, because of the L's. Three of those L's, uh, 2nd Avenue, 9th Avenue, and 6th Avenue go down just before World War II. The 3rd Avenue, L, is up until 1955-56. Wow. And the subway, of course, very important, very important situation. The first subway uh, was a single line that opened in 1904. Um, you could live in the Bronx 
and it wouldn't cost you more to get to your downtown job than if you lived downtown. So it was a brilliant way to spread the population into a further area. And it cost how much for a ride? <laughs> a nickel? It cost a nickel. <laughs> and it was a nickel for what, like 35 or 40 years? Really long time. When, when did the fair go up? Like during or after the Second War? Was that when? Uh, uh, I'm not really uh, sure, but I know around 1900, if you take a 1900 price, multiply by about 35 to get the t- today's oh. equivalent. Sorry. <laughs> Still a veritable deal. <laughs> yes. Um, I'm doing a Gilded Age tour now uh, about what uh, the wealthy of New York were doing on the Upper East Side after the Civil War. So I've been multiplying like crazy all their fortunes. Actually, that was one of the latest tours on my series. Joyce did a great tour of the Gilded Age. And uh, it was just amazing to hear some of the stories and uh, the people who'd lived there and yeah. see some of that remarkable architecture along and around Fifth Avenue. Uh, do you have favorite neighborhoods in the city that you like more than others to mm-hmm. talk about, to well, tour I, around? I mean, it's all, you love it all, I know, I as, really as do, do I. But, and uh, I love the variety of it. I guess my two favorite neighborhoods might be the financial district because it has the most layers of time. It's probably my most popular private tour that I give. And Greenwich Village, partly because of the street plan, partly because it's just almost anything you want to talk about except possibly skyscrapers Greenwich Village has in great numbers. So those are my two favorite, I think. And you've also uh, developed tours in other places, too, Mm -hmm. uh, as far afield as Gowanus. That's right, (laughs) Gowanus and Park Slope as well. Yes, yes. (laughs) Do you have any projects coming up that uh, we don't know about having to do with publishing, any new teaching engagements? Uh, Well, I do love to teach at... um, at NYU, it's a not-for-profit, not-for-credit course on Tuesday evenings, and it's four PowerPoint talks and four walking tours, three different ones over the years, three different semesters, and it's very synergistic with the tours. I find out certain things for one uh, format, and then I bring them into the other. Um, I speak on the canard ships on the Atlantic crossing frequently, and uh, I just did that in September, seven and two half days coming from England to Manhattan. And I get to talk to a thousand people and then I'm on constant television in everybody's stateroom. And interesting people come up and talk to me. So I'm looking forward to doing that again. Queen Mary, Queen Elizabeth, a lot of fun. You know, as, as we embark on this, on this program and uh, we do our tours together, uh, what is it that, having given tours for all these years, what are some of the things that you think that people really like the most about learning about history? Is it only who did what and what place? Is it time? Is it, is, is it, is it figures and facts, or is there something else that, that... Well, everybody loves stories, and history is all about people and stories. What could be more interesting than that? So they often... Uh, I, I do tours of people of their own neighborhood where they've lived for many years, and I love when they find out things that they didn't know, uh, stories about people who were there. Uh, On my Gilded Age tour, I found some very interesting connections between people of the Gilded Age and very famous movie stars, but I'm not giving that away today. (laughs) (laughs) For a future future time. there is one thing I would like to, uh, to uh, talk about. It doesn't have to do with neighborhoods, as we talked about earlier. Uh, occasionally, we will focus on things that are not related to neighborhoods. Um, we're very lucky in that we have, we've lost some gems in old times, like Penn Station, but uh, mm-hmm. we still have Grand Central now as, as one of the miracles of architecture and uh, 
and, and urban beauty. Um, do you want to talk for a couple of minutes about how we still have that today and who was responsible for Well, it? certainly Jackie Kennedy had a lot to do with it because in the 1970s when uh, the railroad was going to sue the city if they made them tear down the building and the city felt they couldn't afford it, it was really Jackie Kennedy who came on the scene and said, we can't just give up our cultural heritage. So it was a 10-year battle through the courts before they took the very risky move of taking it to the U.S. Supreme Court, the question of does a municipality have the right to limit the almost sacred rights of property owners, and had the Supreme Court said no, there would be no landmarking in the country, let alone in in, uh, Grand Central. Hmm. Now uh, we're blessed with, or sorry, interesting thing that's happening now is uh, the Middle East side has just been rezoned. And had it not been for Grand Central being there, we might, uh, the development of that part of town and that neighborhood might be very, very different. We still have a lot to see about how it's going to. What neighborhood did you mention? Uh, the, uh, the Middle East side around, around Grand Central. I see, yes, a lot going on there. In fact, there's a big, very big building going up across the street from Grand Central. The world headquarters of TD Bank. Yes, and, and one of the things that was really nice about that was uh, when they tore down the building that was next to it, you got to see a view of Grand Central for about maybe 12 months that you right. we, we have that we've never seen in my lifetime. That's right. I took a I lot of photos. Again. <laughs> I did as well. Uh, and one more thing about the landmark law is that uh, thanks to the landmark law, we now have incredible beautiful building, incredibly beautiful buildings in many of these neighborhoods that we love so much and they add a lot to them and people love to be around them and to see them and to, and to behold them. Well, it definitely takes public action to, to hold on to things. If, and that's part of what I see my job as. If people say, oh, it's an old building, let's demolish it. But if they know what it is and when it was put up and why it was looking like that, then they would be more interested in, in saving it. You know, nothing seems to move quite as fast as New York changes constantly. But I think it's extremely soothing, especially for New Yorkers, to get a sense of the history, which basically doesn't change. It's very good for the brain and for the soul, I think. Mm. Well, Joyce, this has been great. Thank you so much for joining me on my first show uh, and being my first guest. Uh, We have been having an illuminating conversation with the amazing Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. You can learn more about Joyce's tours on Joyce Gold's history, sorry, Mm JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com, and you can take her upcoming class at NYU, which is now going to start on February 26th, I think. That's right. Tuesday night. Tuesday night. Uh, I, of course, won't be able to do that because I'll be here at Rediscovering New York on a weekly basis. Uh, We'll be right back. We're taking a little break, and uh, we will then be rejoined by Kent Swig of Swig Equities to start the second part of our program tonight. Thank you, Joyce. Thank you very much, Jeff. I love talking about this. (laughs) You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. like comic books and movies? How about TV and pop culture? Then you've come to the right place. Hi, I'm Michael Dolce, host of Secrets of the Sire. Joined every week by my co-host, Hassan, Lord of the Radio Godwin. Together, we have over 15 years' experience creating graphic novels, screenplays, and more. 
Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on the pop culture universe you love to talk about. Wednesday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern, talkradio.nyc. Talking Alternative Radio, 24 hours a day. Welcome back, everyone, to Rediscovering New York. I'm Jeff Goodman. Uh, we're going to take a moment to thank a few of our sponsors who make this program possible. Uh, one is the Mark Myman team, a mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark can be reached at 646-330-4735. And the law offices of Thomas Siaka, Tom handles trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. And if you have any comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our show's mailing list and keep uh, up, be updated on new shows as well as archive material, you can email me. Uh, anyone uh, can guess the email address? Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. How's that for being original? Uh, I also want to uh, uh, make a plug for a colleague of mine who has a real estate show, a little bit different from mine. This show focuses on neighborhoods. My colleague, Vince Rocco, has a weekly show that focuses specifically on the business of real estate in the current market. Uh, Vince hosts Good Morning New York. It's a show about real estate. It can be listened to uh, live Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m. on Voice America and also available on podcast. All righty. Thanks for coming back and joining us. For the second half of our show, it is my pleasure to welcome Kent Swig. Kent is, a no Kent is noteworthy in the United States real estate industry. Originally from San Francisco, Kent's from a family-owned real estate and hotel company, which includes the famed Fairmont Hotel. He's president of Swig Equities, an investment firm that focuses in commercial and residential real estate in New York and California. Kent is also the co-owner and co-chairman of Terra Holdings, which owns leading residential real estate firms Brown, Harris, Stephen, and Halstead, the company I'm with, uh, as well as the brokerage appraisal and consulting firm Vanderbilt Holdings. Kent is also president of Helmsley Spear, which was founded in 1866, talk about New York real estate history, and which was owned by the legendary Harry Helmsley. It's my great pleasure to welcome Kent to the show. Thanks so much for coming today. Thank you, Jeff, and thanks for having me here on your inaugural show. Thank ha you. Happy to be here. Thank you, thank you. Um, how, I'm going to ask you a little bit about your, your personal history. Um, how did you take on the family business and get involved in real estate? Was there a question? Did you have a little break between? What, what, what had you well, go into it? Well, to start, I was born into it, so I, I, whether I, uh, that, that was an opportunity um, of, that I had nothing to do with. Um, how did I get involved? Uh, I was not always interested in real estate. I was uh, originally a Chinese history major at, at Brown University and, and was going on to go uh, you know, do one of those nerdy things and study and, and, and ultimately went to law school and was planning on, on 
Uh, I lived in China before law school and, 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 and planned on doing work uh, in Chinese history and law and, and combined the two. Um, I also, when I was at Brown, uh, took a lot of courses at RISD, Rhode Island School of Design, in photography. And one of the, one of the subject matters that I was very interested in uh, was f- photographing was, was uh, real estate, architecture, design. So I ended up getting involved in that which I thought not, I wasn't so interested in real estate, but then I realized that passionately I love design, architecture, and, and, and stumbled into that, which thankfully was coincidental to my family's business. So. Ah. And is your family's business before you expanded it principally in San Francisco and California? Um, most of our business, frankly, is in New York City um, and uh, in the commercial commercial markets. And we've got now hold it. We're based in San Francisco. My, my grandfather, who started the business in 1936, moved out to San Francisco in 1946. So I'm the first generation born in San Francisco. My older brother, in fact, was born in Boston. Um, so our holdings are around, around the nation at, at this point. What I don't want to ask your age, but when when did you? How old were you when you moved to New York and said this is this um, is where I'm going to be? This how old was I? Was 26 or seven in 1926, 25 in 1987. I guess that makes me 57. Um, so I've had my over under here. I've been here longer in New York than than I was out in San Francisco. Oh, wow. Well, home is where the heart is, especially when you're a New Yorker. Yes, it is. I, the first time I went to New York was I was 10 years old, and. Frankly, that was the first time I ever felt comfortable and, and, and in a city that, that reflected who I was and my personality. And so it's, um, it's, it's been home and it always feels good to be here. Mm. Of course, we New Yorkers love being here. Yeah. Um, how did you get involved in Helmsley Spear? That's something that I, I found out about your business and professional development later on in, in yeah. our association. Well, we uh, originally we bought um, Brown Harris Stevens, uh, which was owned by Harry Helmsley, and we bought that March second in nineteen ninety five, and we're developing and have grown the firm significantly. And I think one of the things is that the disciplines of commercial real estate and residential real estate are different. So I was interested in both commercial and residential. In fact, my background was mostly commercial, so I was looking for a firm that had name recognition and the ability to do third-party businesses, you know, brokerage, management, et cetera, that was distinct and separate from a brand named Brown Hair Stevens because I thought the two are better off if you have different brand names. So when, when the opportunity came up, in October of 07, 2007, I was one of the bidders and, and fortunately ended up with the company. Wow, wow. And a historic company it is. Helmsley Spear has been around in one form or another since right after the Civil War, I think, 1866? Yeah, it's the, it's the oldest continuously operating real estate company in the country, followed by Brown Hair Stevens, which happened to be 1873. So, uh, the Halstead, the company I'm with, is, doesn't have quite the same history. But, uh, no, but it's, got some, it's still a magical history, and Clark Halstead, who founded it, is, is fortunately and wonderfully still with us and, and guiding us uh, as a founder. So um, we're blessed, and maybe 100 years from now, somebody will be talking about the company the way we're talking about the other two companies. Well, being the, the owner and, and president of Helmsley Spear, it, it kind of positions you to be able to talk about how the development of, of major private residential real estate projects uh, aided and abetted the evolution and the development of, of some of the great neighborhoods we see today. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. 
what were some of the notable events, let's say historically, there were certain times that, that, that major projects got developed in, in specific neighborhoods? Well, for, for me, the fir one of the first acquisitions I ever did was uh, with my partner, David Burris, and we ended up buying a, a, a collection of apartments in Tudor City at the Manor, 333 East 43rd Street. Um, so we ended up going to the building, looking at all the apartments, and I was scratching my head. Here, here you're, you know, you're on the East River, overlooking the United Nations, and all the bathrooms faced the river, all the closets faced the river, and there were no windows. So one would scratch their head and under, like, with a magnificent view, why would not somebody have developed windows throughout the here? But like Joyce was saying earlier, the, the, the water side was all development industrial, and, and in fact, the United Nations area were slaughterhouses. So purposefully, they designed the buildings not to have any view, not to have any windows on that area. So you know, there, there's something that we're, we're left with, the, the wonderful buildings of, of, of Tudor City, um, and the history is, is very apparent when you walk in and see a building that has no, no windows looking out at one of the magnificent views, and which begs the question, why? And so that's the answer. So that, that's one of the interesting things when, you, when you're involved with older buildings. It, it speaks to you all the time about why things were done, who made these decisions, what was, what was involved with them. And that, that was you know, clearly research. It was like, why would somebody do this? You, you look at it, and, and, and the history of New York flushes through. So it, it's a wonderful wonderful thing to, to look at that, which I, I love the older buildings and, and th that kind of uh, that kind of work. Oh, and Tudor, the buildings of Tudor City are certainly classic. They have a, a Tudor-like uh, architecture. You know, Indeed, they do. They look like college. <laughs> Some of the buildings when I went to college. Right. So when Tudor City, when, when the buildings of Tudor City went up originally, the, uh, the slaughterhouses were still there? Uh, they were, Tudor, indeed. Wow, wow. So, as uh, Joyce would know more about than I. <laughs> That's right, and it was the uh, it was the deal that ultimately moved the United Nations there that got rid of them and, and built exactly up, right built up the campus of the UM. Yep. Uh, what is it that impassions you about being a developer? What is it that you? What are some of the things that you really love aside from getting the project done at the end of the day? Well, for, it's it's either uh, you're blessed or you're cursed with with certain things that you you know talents you have or 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 look at it um but when i look at things i don't see necessarily what other people see which you know is annoying to my children for sometimes but 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 it's also very good in business so i i see things that could be that that aren't necessarily there today so the the the, the concept that you i can go into an older building and and see a transformation and understand something that can be done with it um, that maybe others don't for, for me is, is, is exciting and, and interesting and holds my attention and passion. Um, so, and, and I like older buildings. I like the hist history of the older buildings and maintaining them and, and still figuring out how to make them, you know, function and perform at the top of their level in today's marketplace. So I, one of the deals I remember well, um, buying uh, Five Hanover Square downtown, and um, not a distinctly magnificent architectural building built in 1962, but n nonetheless, 
you know, a building that was built and, and, and certainly was, was a little bit undernourished and malnutritioned and needed some attention. So um, I went to renovate the building, and my architect kept telling me, you can't do this, you can't do this. I said, but you want the assignment, don't you? He goes, yes. So I said, how about just pretend everything can happen, and you make the drawings work, and I'll make the rest happen, which we did. And so we ended up renovating the building. It was complicated and changing the elevators and how high they were and entrances and moving retail tenants around. Um, and we finally opened up. There was a you know construction small lobby for, for a year, and then we opened up the new lobby, and I happened to be there. And some guy walked in the lobby and asked the, the concierge, you know, where's Five Hanover Square? And the guy goes, oh, you're in the, you're in the building. He said, no, 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 no. I've been a tenant here for years. I went on vacation. I, I need to find my building. The guy goes, no, this is the building. He goes, don't tell me, Sonny, that, you know, this is your building. Um, so finally, the guy explained what happened. We opened up. And, and that, I, I thought, was just a magical moment because here, here this guy had been in the building for eight, nine years, been a tenant there, used to going every day to work. And got lost because he couldn't find the building that he used to live in, or work in, rather. Um, so th that's the kind of thing that, you, you know, like a photographer, you know, people say, oh, my gosh, that's the most incredible photograph ever. Where did you take it? And it's something we see every, we look at every day, but we don't necessarily see. So here, if you see something that's different, you can actually have, have show people something they look at every day, but see it in a very different light, in a different way. So I find that, you know, very exciting and wonderful. And, and that little story was just a, a you know, physical manifestation of, of sort of what I feel about real estate. Mm -hmm. yeah, and isn't it one of the uh, characteristics of living here as opposed to probably most other places in the country where everyone is so rushed, you know, like what can you do in a New York minute? How many of us have heard that phrase? And people walk by and they don't see, they don't appreciate, they don't think about what what it can be, what it is. They just, they don't, they don't let it wash over them. Yeah. It, well, we're busy, but one of the things that you said, which is a critical ingredient here, New York City life is walking around. Whether you're doing it quickly or slowly, you're walking. So I bump into more people from San Francisco living in New York because people are on the streets where in California, you're in a little bubble. You go to your, from your house into a little bubble, which is your car, into a little bubble, which is your work, and there's no interaction other than the radio or your phones or whatever. But here, everybody's on the street, everybody is walking, everybody's participating. So whether you're doing it, you know, relatively, you know, by rote and, and not looking or not, you're still on the street, you're still walking, and, and, and it's got the essence of what a, an urban city is. And so there, there's, that is a magical thing. And that's one of the things that makes New York incredibly special is that people, we relate with each other on the street. I have to tell a, a little personal story. I had some foot surgery in 2000, and um, I was able to go around and get around in cabs, but I was not in a great mood. And then I went to a friend's 44th and a half birthday. <laughs> I remember it, it was at 44 and a half at the time on 10th Avenue in Hell's Kitchen. And I got in a cab. It was, in a, it was a warm December night. And I had my foot propped up in a cast on the, on the back seat. And I just opened the window and there was a lot of traffic, but just I, I just heard people and people's conversations and an occasional disagreement or a fight, but people it's like awesome. I oh, love this it. is this is New York. This is the place that I was born in. This is the place that I love. Yeah, the snippets but, that you get and it, it is it's to take the time for a moment to, to be actual participate in in life, not being on your phone, not being anywhere, it is is wonderful. Hmm. We're going to take a short break, and we will be back again to continue our conversation with Kent Swig. Great. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.
The best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc. Hello again, everyone. We're back to continue our illuminating conversation with Kent Swig. Kent, it's really good to have you. It's a pleasure. Uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about how some of the more recent developments of the city are, not just developments that are getting done, but, but how you know, the fact that they're here are really impacting and changing neighborhoods, mostly for the better. Um, what are some of the newer projects that you've seen recently that either have been finished uh, or that uh, are, are still being built that you think uh, uh, are really going to have a, uh, a good impact on, on how certain neighborhoods are going to develop? Uh, if I had to pick one building, if you will, that, that I think really made a major, major change to a neighborhood, wh- whether better or worse, you know, and maybe, bless her soul, ja- Jackie Kennedy may not have liked this building particularly, but Columbus Circle, um, because that area, certainly when I moved here, was, was run down, um, had the Coliseum there, it, it was underutilized, and, and it was a magical, cor- magical place. And, and that one building, first of all, it transformed Columbus Circle into a circle, which it was was a great thing, and it was the impetus also to go to 110th Street, which changed back into a circle. So I, I think as an impactful f- area, that that really changed that one particular neighborhood and New York in in a very powerful way. And and the and the jazz there that's there, and, and the glass overlooking the entire um, Central Park South and 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 Central Park is is extremely i think one of the most impactful for me positive um buildings that had gone up in new york since i've been here i remember too it was uh it was pretty i would say run down but it was pretty edgy you know and and different uh you know uh, what existed there is not what we have now uh and then we also had the hudson hotel that came along at some point in, in the neighborhood and we have all that development now that's also happening uh, along the southern part of Central Park. Yeah, and I mean, one of the things going on certainly r- right now is is Hudson Yards as a neighborhood that w- where it was an area, but it certainly wasn't walkable because you had the you had the rail yards there. So the, the podium was built and, and platform on top of, of which are many buildings now. I, I think one of the unique things about that particular project is the ability for somebody to actually build all of it at once. 
um, which is really unbelievably difficult to do, financially very risky and, and certainly very bold. But here you've got buildings, both commercial, residential, retail, all being developed at once, which, you know, that's a 20-year career to go do that, and, and this has been done virtually, you know, in five years of construction. Um, and, and uniquely so, one of the things is that the seven line, for different reasons, because New York City was bidding on the Olympics and, and needed to produce the seven line to extend there just to be able to get the Olympics under the Bloomberg administration, which we didn't get. Um, but this, this is one of the few times that transportation preceded development. Usually you have some development going on and then transportation is under, under you know, under needed. I mean, it's very needed, but underserved. So you end up reacting and then responding to a need where this actually was was committed to prior to all the development and and that I think also helped make it work so it's a very unique incredibly organ you know all of a sudden built neighborhood so I think that's certainly impactful obviously the World Trade Center is 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 an extraordinary development in and of itself one of the things in common they both have lots of open space um, and 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 that's sorely needed in New York so I think the commitment from from both developers related and, and Larry Silverstein to what, regardless of what you say, if you like them or not, they, there's a lot of open space that's been with them and, and sorely needed, and I think beautifully done. So I, I commend both those projects for those. You know, one of the things about, about certainly about Hudson Yards um, is that, and Battery Park City did the same thing, is rather than uh, a neighborhood evolving, a neighborhood gets created. You know, yep. there was, like there was, uh, there were very, there were very few people living there, if at all. Well, certainly not in Battery Park City because it was all water. Right. <laughs> and then you have this master plan to build uh, buildings that people would want to live in, to have uh, physical characteristics that people would find uh, uh, interesting and exciting and acceptable, even though they right. live in a big city. And, and they've evolved. Look at the, the World Financial Center now, where, where Brookfield Place. You know, Caesar Pelli originally designed, and now it's been redeveloped for retail. Who would ever think, you know, that kind of retail would would be sitting there and, and connected into the World Trade Center? So, it was it was bold originally, but the the good thing is that it's been able to evolve and grow with the community there, and and, and still re-energize itself and and be present today and and accommodate what what demands are today. Hmm. Do you see any risks at all for any of these new neighborhoods in any way? Uh, you know, because we we see the good side and we love what they produce for us. We love the open spaces. We like the vistas. You know, I've I've been up uh, on a high level in the Hudson Yards, and I have to say it's incredibly breathtaking. And there seems like there's not any anything negative about it. Uh, not to be say that that there will be, but you know, the the question that I had about Hudson Yards is the development of the neighborhood is how long it, will it take for for it to be a real neighborhood, for people just not to be going to and from where they live, but for there to be a life, for there to be places where people will have drinks out on the street, well, not on the street because that's illegal, but in <laughs> uh, tables outside with a cafe license. And uh, uh, you know, will, how long will it take to, to develop that kind of uh, uh, community, bi that, that business community to have people really enjoy being well, there? Well, one of the things, and, I th and I, that was the worry and the thought, I had the same feeling, but the, that's what's so impressive is that they built it all at once. And, and so it became an instantaneous neighborhood with both residential, commercial, th the three, and, and retail. So the question is, are, are there risks? There's risk on development, yes. Um, are there risks to neighborhoods? Um, Here's the thing, it, New, and this is where people use, people say now there are no bad neighborhoods. There are, 
in the 1970s, when Gerald Ford told us to drop dead when we had our huge problem and New York City was on the verge of bankruptcy and the state stepped in, which we have never, by the way, recovered from. We still can't tax ourselves. We still don't control our own transportation. The school system is still controlled by Albany, et cetera. But one of the things that happened here is that we lost 768,000 jobs between 75 and 77. Um, that translated into 1.1 million people leaving New York City, right? Almost more people left New York City in that period than the next largest city in America. And we didn't regain that population till 2003. So you had whole areas that were, that, you know, there was nobody shopping, there was nobody going to the grocery store, there was nobody parking, nobody going to restaurants, nobody going to schools, et cetera, et cetera, laundry. Every, so when you lose a million one people, that's, that's a massive impact. Having regained that population, our entire business career has been working basically in New York recovering from the 70s. And we, we've done very well, but still it's recovering. Now we've got demographics actually on our side where population's growing now to from 8.6 going up to 9 million people. Um, and we've got growth. And, and so when you've got demographics, you've got people on, the, on our side of the, the ledger you know, in growth, the risk of, of neighborhoods growing and, and accepting and, and, and being populated is a lot less than certainly it was from, from the recovery of the 70s in there. So I see less risk of neighborhood you know, issues, but then there's good design, there's quality of life, and, all, and that risks other things. So doing it well is one thing, but I, I don't think the fundamental risk is, is there to the extent it was you know, looking at, at people working in the 80s when they were recovering from a very big shock. Well, your passion about the growth of the city is inspiring. I've been hearing you speak about it and uh, evangelize about it for a number of years since I joined Halstead. And it's... Uh, Sweet, uh, thank it, you. <laughs> no, it's really moving because, you know, I'm, I'm from New York. I was born here. And, uh, you know, maybe I'll end my days here. Who knows? But uh, uh, it's such a great place. And to uh, have someone as a member of the business community who sees this and who's recognized some of the challenges that we have and who's just... Uh, uh, just not interested in building, but how it really impacts the fabric of how people live and how people love this place. Uh, that's great. Yeah, well, that's great. I'm, I'm blessed to be here. I, I every day wake up and and feel great that I'm living in a city that I adore. So I'm I'm very lucky. Do you have any predictions about uh, what neighborhoods you think are going to be a lot different in five years from now? Well. Certainly, West uh, Hudson Yards is going to be different in there. Um, I think the, the the Washington Heights area and some of the northern parts of Manhattan, which are wonderful, and 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 if we do this, if people have responsible, thoughtful growth, I think those neighborhoods are are growing and improving and doing well. Obviously, Long Island City is you know if you came five years ago and all of a sudden you look today you wouldn't know where you were it's like when you take the seven line it's like riding through disney world right through all of these new buildings and things and with amazon coming in i think that's going to be a remarkable change in there for, for, for the positive i'll say one thing about people are criticizing about the giveaways and taxes most of these prop properties five of those properties were owned and occupied by the city they're not getting real estate taxes already they're not collecting on that so when they say the giveaways there nobody's collecting them anyway so you know, the, it's a balance there, and I know it's an impactful thing, and you have to be careful, but I think overall it's it's going to be a good thing for New York City. And a little prediction I'm going to make as well is we're going to see uh, big changes in neighborhoods uh, a little further on, like Woodside, uh, certainly Flushing, uh, maybe even Jackson Heights will, will change a little bit. Uh, Kent, I want to thank you very much. Thank you for joining me on my first show. An honor, been, thank you. It's been an inspiring conversation. Uh, all right, uh, we have been here at Rediscovering New York. Uh, 
tune in in the next couple of weeks for our upcoming shows. We're going to be focusing on the Financial District next Tuesday, the 15th. The 22nd, we will be focusing on Brooklyn Heights. And then back on the 29th is going to be Joyce Gold, who's going to give us a historical perspective on Chinatown. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategist at Freedom Mortgage, and also the law offices of Thomas Siaka, handling trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. And I want to thank our chief sponsor, who's me. <laughs> I'm a real estate agent at Halstead, and whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, I and my team provide our clients with the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach us at 646-306-4761. If you have any questions or comments or want to get on our mailing list, you could reach me at jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our production engineer is Sam Leibowitz. Our special consultant is David Griffin, who's the founder and CEO of Landmark Branding, who will actually be here in two weeks to talk about the heights. Uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. Are you stuck in a rut? Negative thoughts, feelings, and conversations got you down? Hi, I'm Noreen Sumter, the Potentiator. Tune in every Tuesday at 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time and listen for new ideas on my show, Beyond Potential, Live Life Your Way, on talkradio.nyc. Hey, all you crazy listeners. Looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at talkingalternative.com. you like comic books and movies? How about TV and pop culture? Then you've come to the right place. Hi, I'm Michael Dolce, host of Secrets of the Sire. Joined every week by my co-host, Hassan, Lord of the Radio Godwin. Together, we have over 15 years' experience creating graphic novels, screenplays, and more. Join us as we bring you the inside scoop on the pop culture universe you love to talk about. Wednesday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern, talkradio.nyc. The best designs for your life start at home. I'm David Thiergartner, interior designer and host of At Home. Listen live Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern Time as we talk to the very best professionals about interior design and the design that's all around us right here on talkradio.nyc. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network at www.talkingalternative.com. Now, broadcasting 24 hours a day. Talking Alternative. Are you a conscious co-creator? Are you on a quest to raise your vibration and your consciousness? I'm Sam Leibowitz, your Conscious Consultant, and on my show, The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, we will touch upon all these topics and more. Listen live at our new time on Thursdays at 12 noon Eastern Time. That's The Conscious Consultant Hour, Awakening Humanity, Thursdays, 12 noon on talkradio.nyc.
You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network. 